Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast. Dan Hasler and Tim Perkins with you here from Cut Through Coaching and today we are opening up the show to questions from our listening community. Every month or so uh, through the habitsofleadership.com website, uh, listeners can submit their questions and today we're going to be taking on uh, questions from teachers and head of HR as well as uh, uh, principals and people who run their own consulting companies. So we'll jump straight into it. Our first question is from Steve. He's a principal and his question is a fairly simple one. It is, what would your top five books be for aspiring leaders or leaders looking to enhance how they lead? Tim, welcome. Uh, What would you say to Steve? In fact, you know, if we're both going to give our top five, that's probably going to be too many. Why don't you tell me off the top of your head, Top three books. Top three books. Well, good morning, Dad. It's uh, good to be here with you in uh, lovely autumnal Sydney today. In where are we? Uh, end of May, twenty nineteen. End of May. End of May. Middle of you May. Wish, you're wishing your life away, mate. Middle of May. Middle of May. Either that, or you've got a time machine. Not sure which. Top three <laughs> top books for leaders. Books. Well, it's interesting because, and thanks, Steve, for your question. Um, Books about leadership, I think some of the books that we'll explore today are specifically based around leadership, um, but others are more peripheral to that with really good application to leadership, I would say. Right at the top of my list of books that I'm recommending to teachers and other people working in schools at the moment is Drive by Daniel Pink. Um, Essentially, this is a book about motivation theory and Daniel Pink looks in great detail at the differences between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and the impact that developing extrinsically motivated workers or students or colleagues, the negative impact that can have on an environment. And the real need to invest into the idea of intrinsically motivated people and and how you can go about developing uh, intrinsic motivation. One of the things that's specific to schools um, that, that Pink explores in this book is the idea of rewards and punishments um, and how the, the negative impact that rewards might appear to counterintuitively have on developing motivation um, in, in school kids and, and also in, in fellow workers. Um, Daniel Pink talks in this book about the idea that Uh, rewards and punishments can really shackle creativity um, which is the last thing that we want. Um, He talks about the idea that it can also lead to unethical behaviour through people taking shortcuts in the work that they do um, and really lead to a sense of short-term thinking and all of those are you know heading in the opposite direction to what we want to develop with our fellow workers and our students. He talks about the idea that rewards can turn play into work when we're really extrinsically motivated. And then conversely, he talks about the idea of the concept of mastery, which I'll touch on in another uh, book that I'll reference in a minute. Um, And the idea that mastery can turn work into play. 
um, and that idea that you're working towards something. And often when I'm speaking at, at schools or, or uh, sporting organisations about this, we use the analogy of skateboarding, um, uh, about that idea of really developing a skill through continued practice, continued effort until we get to a point of, of genuine mastery and the satisfaction um, that that brings. Um, Pink refers a lot to the research of um, Ryan and DC, two American academics who uh, look at this concept of self-determination theory. And it's a bit of a boring name, self-determination theory, but I reckon if I was a school teacher again, it would really be the focus of almost everything that I did um, in the sense that it's, it's a four-pillar concept, and I won't go into it in great detail here other than to say that um, Ryan and DC talk about uh, autonomy, competence and relatedness, and Dan Pink develops that a little bit further, and my colleague here, Dan Hasler, and I have taken it a little bit further again. And so for us, there's four pillars, um, the first of which is belonging and that sense of really being part of an environment, uh, autonomy, the opportunity to have some choice, to have some say in what's actually happening. Um, mastery, the idea of doing something, as I just mentioned with the skateboarding, to a level where you become genuinely skillful of that thing, uh, in that thing, and, and the satisfaction that that brings and the, the transference of that mastery to other areas as well. Um, and purpose is a fourth one here, and you know, and this is super important in schools because I think often, particularly in relation to the kids, they um, don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. They don't really know where it's heading towards, and and I think that can sometimes be said of the teachers who are who are just being told to do the next thing. So those four pillars super important. Uh, this book he also leads into, and finally I'll say here, he talks about the idea of flow. Um, and that idea that uh, the more we get into the purpose and the mastery of a particular thing, the more likely we are to head into that state of flow, which is a very interesting field of psychology. So number one from me, Drive, Dan Pink, a, a really fantastic resource. Mm, absolutely. I mean, as you said, if you were a teacher, again, you'd be really informing your work. And as you also alluded to there, I mean, it's probably something that we use what on a daily basis with the people we're working with uh, because it seems everybody not just teachers but everybody is looking at ways to um, increase engagement so that was t that's number one what have you got two and three there mate the second one is a book that we're using specifically for the the habits of leadership course that we're running at the moment um which is a fantastic book called primal leadership more specifically in the in the realm of leadership particularly um, the key author of this one is Daniel Goleman, who is the guy who coined the phrase of an emotional intelligence um, and wrote the book of the same name. And here in the writing of this book, he's joined by Richard Boyatzis and Annie McKee. And so this book is based around the concept of emotionally intelligent leadership. Um, he, they basically bifurcate the idea of resonant leadership and versus dissonant leadership and looks at the, the roles of each of those and, and how resonant leadership, a real uh, sense of uh, self-awareness, of empathy, um, of collaboration and a desire to motivate, are really at the essence of somebody who can lead in a resonant way. Uh, and the opposite of that is is a sense of dissonant leadership and that idea that 
it's sort of I always sort of see it as two fists running into each other. It's sort of this idea that things clash, that people aren't listened to, that there's a lower level of emotional intelligence. Um, and it's that sort of my way or the highway style of leadership as opposed to a let's really work alongside each other, let's really get to know each other and what makes each other tick uh, in order to bring out the best in the people that we work with. Um, in this book, he they the authors look at the concept of emotional intelligence and break it into four sort of domains. They talk about self-awareness, self-management, social awareness and relationship management. Uh, and again, I won't go into great detail on any of those here other than just to draw the listener's attention to these concepts um, that once we start getting all of those pillars into place, then we can develop an environment that really is an emotionally intelligent environment mm. where people can really work to the best of their abilities because they're, the leaders in those environments are bringing out the best in them. Yeah, and I, I know actually we've got a question coming up later on which will probably circle back and, and touch on the importance of uh, having emotionally intelligent leaders. So top two books there were Drive and Primal Leadership and what's, what's coming in at number three? Well, it's very hard to go past um, Carol Dweck and her book on mindset and obviously that again forms the basis of the, a lot of the work that we do. Um, you know, Dweck's theories that probably almost everybody in education is familiar with is just that concept of really getting to an understanding that our abilities can be developed. If, if you really want it in a nutshell, as simply as you can, that recognising that, of course, we're born with natural skills and abilities and, and, uh, and that's wonderful. However, it's, it's that concept of that awareness that those skills and abilities can be developed uh, and even a, a real shortfall in any particular skills or abilities can be brought to the fore through effort, perseverance um, and, a, and a belief uh, that with time, with effort, with continued uh, application, then people can really move into realms of mastery in, in particular fields. As Dan's gone to lengths to say previously, um, it's not this sense that, you know, Yes, uh, my year five child, my year 10 child, whoever it is, um, you can be whatever you want to be. It's not really about that at all. It's about that idea that we can develop our skills um, and it's a genuine belief that that can occur. Um, mindset, you know, we talk about a fixed and Carol Dweck talks about a fixed and a growth mindset and we'll start in the positive, uh, the idea of a, a growth mindset. And the characteristics of someone in a growth mindset is that they tend to seek out and embrace challenge. So there's that lack of fear of trying something new um, and being a novice because there's an understanding that with effort, um, greater achievement can occur. The idea of persisting in the face of setbacks, that, that sense that, you know, of course things are going to go wrong, of course there are going to be challenges, um, but it's it's what sort of mindset do you take to those challenges? Um People in a growth mindset tend to revel in the struggle. So when things get difficult, that is just a further challenge for them and, a, and really develops a desire to work harder towards something. Um, particularly, and this has real relevance to schools um, and is important for us as teachers to understand the, the real importance of feedback and critique and, and giving really valuable feedback. Um, and then someone in a growth mindset is really able to take that on in a non-defensive way and really learn from that feedback. And then finally, this idea of really being inspired by the success of others. 
Um, and obviously the flip side of that is, is the characteristics of someone in a fixed mindset, but uh, I'll leave you to read the book to get further into that field. And, and if you don't want to read the book, it might be worth just having a listen to uh, episode two of this podcast series in which um, it featured an interview with uh, Carol, Carol Dweck, around some of the uh, common misconceptions uh, of mindset. But I just wanted to chuck in... Um, a couple of books or three books that I also add to that list. Um, the first one is by James Kerr, and it's called Legacy. And it actually focuses on the leadership philosophies and behaviours and basically the culture, if you like, that um, the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby union team, that really try and uh, embed and embody um, in their in their work and, and in, in the way they play. Um, being a sports tragic myself, um, I really enjoyed that the read from that point of view, but also there's many um, lessons that can be applied regardless of whether you're a leader in a school, a leader in a, in a team, um, like a, literally a leader in a sporting team or um, a leader in the corporate sense. So uh, that's Legacy by James Kerr. And I should, uh, should also have mentioned that we're going to leave all links to these different books in, in the show notes. So if you haven't grabbed the name um, or the authors, don't worry, just dip into the show notes and you'll be able to find um, links to each of the books here the second book i'd throw at you is a book called the fearless organization by amy edmondson and this really looks at um, the issue of psychological safety in organizations and in teams and you know the work that uh, we're doing um, in all in all different areas time and time again we're seeing a lot of the issues a lot of the challenges that present are usually due to a lack or certainly not as much psychological safety as might be um required or, or appropriate and, and a simple little acid test to, to use is um, to see if there's a, you know enough psychological safety is think of a time when um, you didn't speak up think of a time when you didn't speak up on something that you felt was actually quite important to speak up on but for whatever reason you you kept it to yourself and when you pull back the layers on that and say well why did I not speak up you know, there's a chance that it's to do with a lack of psychological safety. Would it be held against you? Uh, would people think less of you? Would it harm your promotion chances? So that's a really interesting read um, that I'd urge you to uh, get your hands on as soon as you can. And the final book I'd uh, suggest, which I know, I know, Steve, it takes it to six books, but um, this book is an absolute must in anybody's library, I think. And it's called The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay-Stanya. And I would suggest that this book, as much as perhaps Drive or Mindset, but maybe even more, has really influenced the way I I personally work uh, when I'm working one-to-one -one with people. Um, really taking the idea of being authentically curious to develop genuine empathy um, and positioning yourself as not being the rescuer, as not being the saviour, as not the person who needs to have all the answers. Um, this book really explores not only the theory behind why it's not very useful to try and fix everyone's problem, but it also gives you the really tangible specifics and a real good framework for having conversations. So there's six books for you to um, have a look at. And uh, Tim, what's our, what's our next question? Rachel runs her own coaching and consultancy business and she's an executive officer for a parenting body in Victoria. Thanks for your question, Rachel. How can we encourage and support school leaders 
to embrace parents as partners in learning across all schools to improve student learning outcomes. Dan, you've uh, worked in a few schools as a teacher in your time and certainly a lot of schools in your role as a coach and consultant. Mm. Um, what do you think about this, the relationship with parents as partners to improve student learning outcomes? Yeah, it's a, um, it's one of the, it's a very vexed issue, I think, parents in, in schools. There's either too many of them or, or too few of them. Uh, you know, a lot of schools say we want the parents to be more engaged and yet we go to somewhere, uh, some schools saying we just wish they weren't quite as engaged you know they're the ones who are um they never seem to be off off campus so um there's no secret of course that having parents who have that real sweet spot of being engaged you know it's it's almost fundamental um in in helping our students be the best that they can be um i have a bit of a throwaway line that you know unfortunately some of our best efforts in school don't pan out because the kids go home so whether it's uh, high performing kids who are chronically anxious because the parents are continually doing performance reviews on them at the dinner table or whether it's kids who are going home um and you know there's no consistent adult there there's it's it's you know it's stimulating for all the wrong reasons um this this issue of how do we bring parents in to the um to the puzzle if you like um is, is obviously one that many people are grappling with so Obviously, in a in a, a podcast, we're not going to be able to give definitive solutions because every context is different. But some of the ways that um, I've seen it work really well, um, from a if you think about the different layers of engagement, if you like, so and, and bringing in so just from this point of view of having parents understand what's going on. Um, so some schools are using social media or apps like um, you know, I think there's one called Seesaw, which is quite popular, and a lot of that is just to be able to show the parents this is what the kids are doing in class and that can be quite useful um, and particularly if it's then layered with a little bit of um, ideas I guess as to how to, how parents might support them you know a, an example that springs to mind is um, helping kids with you know solving maths problems or whatever but by using um, these apps or these platforms then teachers are able to demonstrate quite clearly to the parents you know the technique for doing I don't know long division or whatever it is they're doing so they can naturally help the, the kids out in that way obviously um, the next layer up is actually having parents I guess in the classroom and we see this a lot in reading programs and um, or in you know cultural events or um, things which um, parents are typically there as a um, I'm not quite sure of the right word, but like a supplementary role. So there to enhance or amplify what the teachers are doing. But one um, particular um, way of engaging parents, which has been really interesting to me, is one I first found out about when I, I went. I got a scholarship tour back in 2010, and I visited a school in the UK um, who were recognised as the the government as being like one of the lowest performing schools. They they went into what's called special measures, which in England, if you go into special measures, you're about a term away from being closed down. And the principal at the time, who's gone on to be a very good friend of mine, called Richard Gerver, he um, went about looking at well, why is it the school is in such trouble and a lot of it was just the I guess the cultural the societal mindset that school sucks and um, you know it wasn't a place for them 
And one of the things that he did uh, amongst a whole raft of things um, is uh, he encouraged or he, he reached out, if you like, to the parents and brought them in, not to help out, but he brought the parents in as experts. And he brought the parents in as experts, whether it's in mechanics or whether it was in cooking or whether it was in languages. And he would have those parents actually facilitate sessions that the kids could then opt into and they called it university um, so it was this idea that every friday uh, the timetable would basically cease there would be no timetable as such there'd be no um, of what you might class as traditional primary school lessons and it would be university and the language was very deliberate to sort of raise aspirations that anyone could come to university um, and it would be an opt-in um uh, environment and and it would be led by the community and the, he writes about this in his book it's quite an old book now it's called creating tomorrow's schools today again we'll put the link into the um into the show notes here but i'd recommend it as a as a read for someone who's really wanting to change things up in their school particularly if you you consider your school to be a tough school the you know um this as i say school was in special measures a relatively low socioeconomic area um, and yet they were able to do things just by getting out there and, and reaching out to the community so another way of thinking about it as well of course is just capturing the parents when they are there you know when it's um when it's i don't know um sports day or, or whatever how do we get them in, engaged I guess in the conversations that are going around the school my final thing is in terms of a, a um, in, in my final thing would be in terms of a resource or, or something I can actually point you to is the Department of um, Education down in South Australia um, put out a, a a resource called Involvers, and again, the link will be in the show notes, where they actually spoke about specific strategies to go and reach out to different communities and, and communities of different cultural backgrounds as well. So, but Tim, you know, you've worked in lots of school environments. What, what do you um, think about this? What are your thoughts when it comes to engaging the parents? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a really interesting question. And thanks, Rachel, because, and Dan's touched on a lot of aspects there about how to, to possibly best utilise the parents and when when parents are in there and how to take advantage of those situations and perhaps some of the good work that's happening at schools being undone in, in home environments which are less than optimal. Um, I suppose I want to look at it from a slightly other side as well and, and one of the things that I notice about schools is that increasingly I notice a, a sort of a semi-adversarial relationship between schools and parents and and that's come about perhaps because some of the some of the trickier parents have spent too much time in schools and put a few teachers noses out of joint in the sense that they they've made life a bit difficult by focusing on their own child to you know rather than you know what I would consider to be a really important triangular relationship um, between parents school and child I don't think that um, school in the 21st century needs to be what it was previously which was really about parents saying teachers are the experts we'll leave our kids with you for six hours a day um, for about 40 weeks of the year and and you you do what you do best with them uh, I think parents now want a lot more information um, and I think they're entitled to a lot more information but not in the sense that they're checking up on the school and asking about teacher credentials and, you know, trying to work out whether the schools are actually doing a decent job or not. I, I think 
that's the opposite of what I would suggest would be a healthy way to help improve student learning outcomes, which is this question. It's more about how can we really leave our doors open? How can we develop truly emotionally aware relationships with the parents so that we're all very aware as leaders in a school, as teachers in a school, as parents, and also as the kids uh, who are the students in the school, that the education of a child really does involve all of those stakeholders. Um, and that, of course, the teachers have the expertise in the classroom, but that expertise can really be magnified through healthy relationships um, where the door is very much open so that, you know, Dan mentioned that idea um, of, of the school in the UK where uh, parents are used for their particular skills that, you know, I, I used to regularly have parents who had particular skills come in. We had a particularly enjoyable experience at a at a school I taught at in Sydney where um, one of the dads was a carpenter and he took a couple of days in between jobs and worked with us and, and built the most magnificent cubby house with the kids and got them onto the tools and, and the learning in that situation was fantastic and it made him feel like he was really part of the school community despite the fact that he didn't have a lot of school success himself and so schools represented a particular thing for him which wasn't a positive one. And so to come in and to be able to share his skills with not only his own kid but with the rest of the class and with me um, was a real plus. So I think we can improve student learning outcomes by developing a positive um, and enthusiastic relationship uh, between the parents and the school so that they really feel like they're a part of the place um, and that they're very welcome and also that they probably need to understand what their responsibilities and boundaries are in relation to, you know, telling the school how it should be run. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? Having some clear expectations. Because a lot of the time, I remember we were working with a community of schools uh, last year and the schools were saying, why aren't these parents coming in? <laughs> you know, why don't they care? And when we actually ran some focus groups with them, it wasn't that they didn't care. It was actually that the... the, the parents or the, the parent community were kind of like but we didn't know we could mm. and um, and and that was compounded by the fact that they really trusted the schools like it wasn't any negativity it was actually almost it was kind of sounded strange to say they almost trusted the school too much mm. uh, and they kind of just did over uh, you know hand over their kids and go right okay we trust you to do it so it was a really that was a really interesting um back and forth to sort of see where where that could get to Okay, our third question is from Joseph. He's a deputy, uh, deputy principal, and he has got a quite, I mean, this is a massive question. I think we'll only touch on a couple of the basics here, but the question is, what advice would you give a school looking to increase engagement in their students? And I'm wondering, obviously, if already there's a, you know, a few, a few um, threads that we're going to pull together from the previous two questions. But Tim, what what would be one of your t one or two key points? You know, generally speaking, what what do we need to do if we're going to increase engagement in the kids? Well, it's a great question again, and I think it's absolutely essential because I think engagement is low as a general rule, and the competition for kids' interests is severely uh, challenged by what they're doing in their digital world, in their home world. Um, and the idea of a year five teacher engaging kids in a writing task when they've been uh, watching television or playing Fortnite for a couple of hours before they walk into that classroom and then they're asked to write a, a narrative piece uh, about something they're studying at school, I think that's a challenge. So 
specifically, I would say the choice is the absolute key in increasing engagement. If we think about it, if we apply it to our own worlds, what are the sorts of things that we're really engaged with ourselves? And they're the ones that we've chosen. Um, so if I want to uh, improve my golfing skills and that's something that I've chosen to actively pursue, my engagement level is going to be high. Engagement in relation to the feedback that I'm getting from other people who might be better golfers than me or coaches um, and my desire to improve will really dictate uh, the amount of effort and engagement that I put into that. Um, similarly, you know, in any pursuit that you have, whereas I think school is seen by a lot of kids as a bit of a necessary evil and they turn up and they don't necessarily know where they're going on their schooling journey. Um, activities can appear to be in isolation to each other and student choice and voice in those activities is usually very minimal. So I think one way we can definitely increase engagement is through increased choice. Um, I touched on there the idea of purpose as well and you'll notice here that this is tying in very nicely to Dan Pink's work and, and the work of Ryan and DC in relation to self-determination theory. When kids know why they're doing something, when they feel like they belong, when they're given a choice in what they're doing and when they're given an opportunity to do it to a level where they can achieve some real success and mastery, engagement goes through the roof. I had a very interesting teaching experience for a few years uh, at an alternative school in Sydney called Currumbina where... It's essentially a democratic school and the kids are... Um, the idea is to reduce coercion as much as possible and give the students as much choice as possible and to really make as few things uh, as they can manage compulsory. And the, the one compulsory one really was that they needed to come to school each day. But beyond that, they were given a lot of choice about where they went on their learning journey. That was based on the idea of A.S. Neil or the philosophies of A.S. Neil from Summer Hill School in England fascinating book to have a look at if you're interested in that um, but yeah I think choice is the absolute key if we we're going to reduce the answer to this question to one word it would be choice for mm. me which I guess would be a I mean there's a challenge there isn't there with the what we'd like to do and then balancing that with what schools are being increasingly told that we have to do whether that's raise standardized test scores or compete with you know our Asian neighbours or whoever that might be. So the Finns. The Finns, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting, I think, when, it, for me anyway, when we're working with different um, schools and, and sort of my, my advice would be, um, first of all, if you're looking to increase engagement, well, you need to define what it is and you need to understand what engagement is because, let's be honest, a lot of the time we don't. We think we know what it is. Um, and we think we can measure it, but you know, with a score and a report card, you know, Johnny is so engaged. Well, and this, you know, obviously, I'm not going to make sweeping statements here, but this one might sound a little sweeping. That a lot of the time, we're sort of measuring how on task people are, how well they've complied, how to what extent they've actually done as they've been told. Um, whereas, and and to be clear, that is a form of engagement. Right, that you know, that's ritual engagement. That's I'm, I'm on task. I'm doing what you've told me to do. Now reward me for it. Um, whereas authentic engagement, and this is what I'm saying, like a lot of these threads that we've spoken about before will come together. Authentic engagement, I'd do this without the promise of a grade or without the promise of a sticker or or, or whatever. And, and I think that, and and I'm not saying that this is easy to do. This is the very real challenge because 
let's be honest, you know, nowadays kids do have far more choice in their outside life than than say we did. Um, you know, when we were we were growing up. So this idea of uh, choice being necessary to be authentically engaged, but then recognize well to what extent are schools willing to go there? You know, how can kids choose to demonstrate their understanding? How can kids choose who they work with outside of their immediate classmates? Um, how can kids choose to engage with the community in a way which is actually authentic rather than just, you know, the, the classic imagine a business is looking for something, what would you say to them? Why don't we go out and find the business which is looking for a new design or looking for some input? And and for me, that's, you know, it absolutely screams back at, the self-determination theory that you've spoken about and it's 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 uh i think it's a great opportunity and and in some school environments it is an absolute necessity because we don't have any conformity we don't have kids actually do because they're looking around and they've kind of gone nut this is not for me so defining what engagement is what it actually looks feels sounds like what it is we're after i think that for me would be the first thing to do because a lot of the time it's just assumed that we know what engagement is but if you take five teachers you'll get five different definitions yeah i think that's interesting dan because you talk about that idea of potentially confusing compliance for engagement kids who are sitting up straight doing as they're told handing in their homework objectively meeting all the measures and criteria um, but if you imagine a, a continuum um, with compliance on one end uh, and engagement on the other end, you talked about that idea down there of being on task, and that very much fits at the compliance end. But Jeff Munns um, from the University of Western Sydney talks about this idea of being in task as opposed to being on task, and he's written some really great uh, work on this concept of in-task and on-task. And I know one of his uh, PhD students, Kate Winchester, also did some work on, on engagement related to this concept of in-task versus on-task. And the language, I think, of that is, is so brilliantly simple. When someone is in-task, imagine I, I often picture a kid playing in the back in the backyard, maybe it's, you know, making mud pies, maybe it's damming a little bit of, you know, water somewhere. They're so in task, they they get into that concept of flow that I mentioned earlier. Time changes, they're, they're so focused. They're not waiting for a reward for doing it. They're, there's no audience watching them doing it. They're not getting a grade for it. They are truly engaged and in task. So how do we move into that area? And I think Dan's made a really good point there that this is challenging, This is this is hard. But it's about us letting go to some extent as teachers and trusting that our students intrinsically know how to be in task. And if we give them choice, and I'm not suggesting a free-for-all or a laissez-faire sort of approach at all, but, you know, offering two or three choices, all of which we're happy with, and listening if they've got a fourth one of their own, to see if we can move into that area of in task because that's when the real in-depth learning happens and once that's happening, engagement takes care of itself, as does behaviour management in your classroom, interestingly. All right, uh, let's move on to our final question here from Carrie, who's the head of HR. Her question is, do you have any suggestions to help leaders improve their emotional intelligence when working with their teams? When I raise it with them, the general response is either I'm wrong, i.e. they don't need to improve in this regard, or I've got to where I am by being like this, why would I change now? So interesting question here for you, Dan. Let's throw to you. Yeah, I mean, any time I hear 
um, a question around uh, emotional intelligence or lack thereof, um, in, in, particularly in leaders, I'm, I'm immediately reminded of the book uh, "What Got You Here Won't Get You There" by Marshall Goldsmith. Um, the the premise is, as you become um, a leader or as you become promoted, the, the further up the, the chain, if you like, then the less your success has to do with um, your ability at the said role. So, and, and the more it is to do with, with managing people and, and leading people. And that's where your IQ becomes less important and your EQ, your emotional intelligence, really comes to the fore. So... With regards to your question, Carrie, you know, there's a couple of things. Uh, that, I mean, the question is, what, why should I change now? So there's two questions that they they think you're wrong. So how do we um, impress upon them that in fact no, this is an issue? And the second thing is, if it is an issue, why should I change now? Because you know, I've been successful to this point. I'm, I'm on this high-paying job, presumably, or I'm certainly on a better-paying job than I was 12 months ago before I was promoted. So why would I change now? Because this is, this is what got me, got me here. And, you know, I wonder if we... If we tackle the first one first, why change now? You know, impressing upon um, leaders that um, their the way they interact with their team will eventually dictate the success thereof. What I mean by that is, uh, and it's a cliche, but you know, people don't leave organizations, they leave bad bosses, right? So, and, and typically the people who leave aren't the people you really want leaving, right? So people who aren't very good at their job typically stay um, of, of their own volition, right? Because they kind of know they're not going anywhere else. But people who are good at their job if their boss is a bit of a, you know, less than ideal, they're the ones who start looking around. And when they do leave, they take the capacity of the company with them. They take the IP, they take the, their knowledge, their skills. You know, a lot of the time when we're working with, in, particularly in corporate space, you know, I might ask in a focus group, you know, where did you last work and why did you leave? And a lot of the time it's because the people weren't treating them as well as they might like. Now, I'm not talking about some sense of entitlement. I'm just talking about te uh, treating them with respect, you know, uh, hearing them out, not shutting them down. Um, so why change now? Just from a very, you know, I'd, I'd be having the, the organization on a, on a bigger sense actually work out what is the financial cost of when a person leaves? What does it cost to hire a new person? What is the future earnings that they're taking away. And there's all kinds of tools that are out there in the corporate world to, to look at that for sure. The The first question is, or the first challenge you had is, well, what if they turn around to you and say, well, you're wrong. You know, I, I, my emotional intelligence is wonderful. My, my team uh, love me. Well, the, the, there is only one way of, of doing this, uh, to, to, to find out what the reality is, and that's to hold a mirror up you know and obviously we we call these 360s so 360 feedback is one in which the leader um, answers a series of questions and then ideally um, their their immediate boss would take part as well as the people who they're responsible for and then you curate all this and you feed it back and what it does is it shows where there are um, uh, correlations it shows where there are synergies between what 
the leader believes and what the team leads. So, for example, it might say, the leader might say, I'm really clear on our team's direction and the goals, and, and all the teams go, yep, really clear on that. We know exactly what it is we're supposed to be doing and why we're doing it. But then there might be a blind spot where the leader says, no, I'm a really, you know, I'm really caring. I, I, I listen to my team. I, I take interest in their personal lives. But the feedback they get from the team is, no, they're aloof, they're cold, they don't seem to care if I have a personal issue. And that's the only way in demonstrating to the, the, the people that there's, there's something amiss. You know, other, up until then, up until then, it's just your opinion as far as they're concerned. Up until then, it's just what you're seeing and, and you don't understand. It's only by doing a, you know, a, a proper 360 uh, survey in this way that you're able to come up with that kind of, um, I wouldn't say intervention, but that kind of uh, information that people can then process. And then, of course, you've got to go through the work of, of dealing with that because one of the things which makes me smile a lot is when we do 360s with in, in corporate or in, in, in schools and there's the time and time again something comes up about something saying oh it doesn't delegate well or um, doesn't listen well and the amount of times people say something along the lines of um, oh yeah you know that's nothing new I've heard all that before and my question usually back to then is well if you've heard it all before why are we still hearing it now and this of course presents the biggest challenge when it comes to 360 feedback is that we've all been through 360s typically at some level but then we've not done anything about it and so having some kind of coaching framework around what are you going to do when you receive this feedback is really really critical and that's really at the heart of uh, that book by goldsmith that i mentioned uh, what got you here won't get you there yeah well, it, it also makes me think about the work of ed shine you know ed shine um is one of the gurus of of leadership corporate leadership um and he works with his son, Peter, now. And th they wrote a book together that was released, I think, at the end of last year called Humble Leadership. Um, and one of the things that Ed Shine talks about in that book is a word that, you know, Dan and I have both struggled with at different times. But uh, he uses this concept of personising. Um, and that is a great way to develop emotional intelligence. As opposed to personalising. Which we might, we might say, yeah. if, you know... Uh, <laughs> in uh, more British English, personalising. But that idea of really getting to know the people that you work with or the people who work for you uh, in order to know how to work best with those people. And I suppose that is what emotional intelligence is about. It's about being able to get outside of yourself and realising how the people you're working with, how they interact in the world and, and the impacts of different things on them. So there was a podcast uh, which Dan has mentioned to you before Called, in, called Coaching for Leaders, uh, and there was a particular episode, which is episode 363, uh, called The Path of Humble Leadership, and that's the Coaching for Leaders podcast with Dave Stahoviak. Um, we'll put that in the show notes. We'll put it yeah. in the show notes, but that's a really interesting one to listen to um, with Ed Shine in relation to developing that emotional intelligence. Cool. Well, that pretty much wraps up the, um, the questions for this podcast. Um, if you... 
would like to submit your own questions or insights or perhaps maybe even suggest a guest for an upcoming uh, podcast, you can head over to habitsofleadership.com and just click onto the podcast page there and you can, uh, it's pretty straightforward, just punch in your questions or, or your suggestions for guests. Also, you might find more information there about um, our upcoming uh, Habits of Leadership program. We'll be taking registration soon for our second cohort, which is for the semester two of 2019. And of course, if you have found this episode or any of the other episodes useful, please subscribe, please like it, please rate it, leave a comment. Uh, We're getting a few nice little um, ratings on iTunes and Spotify and Podbean. Thanks particularly to Alex in a Box for your rave review. Um, If you have got something from it, it really does make a difference if you can do this. And of course, if you can share it with your network, we'd really appreciate that as well. But until our next episode, from Tim and I. Thank you very much for listening and take care. Take it easy.